0: What's up, Virginia Heffernan?
1: Maya Wang is so great. I think we should just post her full interview as bonus material.
0: Let's do it.
1: My name is Maya Wang, and I'm a senior China researcher at Human Rights Watch.
0: Hi, folks, this is Walt Schaub. Virginia Heffernan and I have been co-hosting The Continuous Action, a new podcast sponsored by The Project on Government Oversight, a nonpartisan, independent government watchdog. And we've been exploring issues confronting democracy. In episode three, we explored the issue of government surveillance. One of the experts we talked to was Maya Wong. And the interview of Maya was so fascinating that we just kept talking to her for about 40 minutes. And obviously we couldn't fit all of that into episode 3 of the podcast, so we thought we would post the full interview for you as bonus content. I think you're really going to enjoy it. Maya takes us deep into the dystopian world of surveillance in China, sort of a worst-case scenario for a future we hope to avoid. And Maya has some advice for exactly how we avoid it. Hopefully you've been enjoying the podcast and episode 3 was all you hoped it would be. But if you're craving more, you're going to love this interview with Maya Wong. Let's listen to it right now. How pervasive is government surveillance in China?
1: It is very pervasive. The Chinese police has or is constructing a very comprehensive, multi-layered surveillance system that blankets much of the country. Uh, with the intention, uh, of, with essentially an explicit political goal, which is to ensure that the Chinese Communist Party um, can rule forever. And of course, I mean, the, the police also performs many different kind of functions, like police elsewhere, but the surveillance infrastructure in China has an explicit political goal, which is to ensure what they call social stability, which is kind of the shorthand for ensuring the Communist Party's grip on power in China.
0: And how is facial recognition being used?
1: I think often people, I think because there has been a lot of reporting about facial recognition in China, and because facial recognition is also a technology being used elsewhere in the world, and because it is such a visible form of surveillance, I mean, in the form of, you know, cameras in public places, I think it evokes a very kind of strong feeling among people around the world. And there has been, you know, strong pushback against the use of facial recognition across the world, particularly in democratic countries, right? Well, people should be pushing back against them. But at the same time, I have to say that facial recognition really is only one part or one pillar of China's mass surveillance systems in which there are many parts. And I will explain um, how that is being used. Obviously, you know, the, the government has put in place many kind of these camera systems around the place, primarily in urban areas, but also increasingly also in rural areas. And these cameras are now equipped with kind of these artificial, intelligent, analytical capabilities. And that means that, you know, these systems are designed to recognize certain things in the visual world. So in the past, the difficulty of surveillance camera systems is that generally, if you have, if you're, say, looking for someone in the video stream, you would have to take like you would have to spend a lot of your uh, officer hours watching that surveillance footage to find someone, right? So what these cameras, uh, these new camera systems equipped with artificial intelligence AI do is that they are meant to kind of recognize meaningful elements in the visual field to aid uh, police uh, work. And facial recognition is one of that type of analysis right is to recognize the people in the visual field however that's not all that is actually being done and other aspects are uh, kind of other analytics are being conducted and for example uh, the surveillance systems are able to recognize color right able to recognize objects direction crowds uh, what what whether or not a crowd is unusual, like moving in an unusual manner, you know, license plate, whether or not vehicles are involved in an accident. And what that also means is that the idea is to break the visual, complicated visual information into essentially almost like a text, where you can then search through this information in a much quicker manner. So let's say I'm looking for someone who wears a red shirt going the direction north towards the north of the city. Ideally these systems would be able to actually, you know, search through the, these video surveillance footage or across the city to find that person that fits the description. So that's like one way in which this is used. In another way, like I was saying that, you know, facial recognition is how, going back to your original question, the other way in which these systems are used is, for example, uh, certain lists of individuals the authorities may be looking for. So there are lists of people that the, the police are looking for, for various, what the authorities call cri- crime. There are some crimes that are, you know, le- real crimes. And they are also because the Chinese police are tasked with po- um, catching political crimes criminals, people who are merely dissidents or activists or petitioners, people complaining about government misconduct, uh, these camera systems can be used through the facial recognition or other analytics to catch these people who have, who are merely kind of opponents to the regime, along with other people that the police want to catch. But this is just one way in which facial recognition or, or, or camera systems can be used. Another way is how these camera systems are integrated into policing surveillance systems, which are much bigger than just the use of uh, camera systems.
0: One of the things that really struck me was reading an article about how your group, Human Rights Watch, reverse-engineered a a cell phone app that police use to capture information about people they encounter and record it in a centralized system. Uh, I was amazed at the type of things they were capturing. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Sure. Um, So the app we reverse engineered is or was used in um, the region of Xinjiang in northwestern China, where it is a region that in a country with deep human rights abuses, Xinjiang is a region with even worse human rights abuses, because it's a region where is over the majority of the residents are ethnic minorities, who are Muslims, um, many of whom are Muslims, and the authorities long kind of considered them as problematic because they are so different. The government has used the language of counterterrorism, essentially kind of capitalizing on the US's uh, war on terror to label these groups of minorities, like I said, some of whom happen to be practicing Muslims, to characterize them, essentially the whole group, as terrorist, and using that kind of excuse to particularly deprive them of a range of rights that are even more so than, you know, the rest of China. And uh, so th- it was in this context that the use of um, s- surveillance is being imposed with greater severity on Xinjiang. And as part of that, sur- these surveillance systems, in which there are many, one of them, a central part of that, is called the Integrated Joint Operations Platform, IJOP. And um, the IJOP is essentially kind of like the brain or the big data brain of these surveillance systems. And they're connected to many different things around the region, including the camera systems, which is, uh, imagine that if IJOP and the back end is like the brain of the surveillance systems, the camera systems are kind of like the sensory. Nodes or the sensory systems of, of the brain, right? And then other sensory systems across the region are things like data doors. When people pass through checkpoints and they are required to pass through checkpoints in, in the cities, throughout the cities, when they enter and leave a village along the highways, everywhere, they are required to pass through these checkpoints, some of which are, are essentially equipped with this kind of technology that recognizes your face, but also surreptitiously collecting information like the, the MAC address, of the which is identified information of your Phones and computers are passing through as you walk through these doors, and other devices throughout the city um, also collects your identifying information of yourself. Like I said, your the MAC address of your devices, but also IMEI numbers and license plate numbers. All of that information is aggreg- are integrated and analyzed at the back end using big data systems. And what that means is that, for example, if you drive a car that doesn't belong to you, if you go to the gas station. Too quote too many times a day. If you if you have a phone that suddenly you know go off grid, like it hasn't been used for many days, or, or that the phone suddenly is no longer connected to the network, or if you call abroad, then the system picks you up as an abnormal signal in the system, and was dispatch the officer nearby to interrogate you for. to to see whether or not you are somewhat suspicious, following which these people, if they are considered suspicious by by the government officials, they can be sent to political education camps where they are arbitrarily detained without charge or trial. Or they are sent to, they could be sent to prison in which they face very lengthy imprisonment for over a decade of time. And the the, the app, which is IJOP app, is connected to the back end system and is used as a kind of a communication tool with um, the essentially the government officials, primarily the police have these phones which has this app installed on it and we were able to get a hold of this app and reverse engineer it to understand what are the criteria where people are actually being um, are considered kind of sus- suspicious behavior that can get them into trouble according to the IJOP system. And you're right to say that these criteria seem very odd. Like if you if you look inside the app, it's telling you that people are being they're considered suspicious for the variety of, of reasons that I just outlined. but there are many more, for example, using too much electricity, having entering your home through the back door instead of the front door, um, having donated to mosques uh, very enthusiastically. Uh, using WhatsApp, using VPN, virtual private networks, which are a way of what people in China would do. They would scale the firewall, essentially avoid the censorship and and go and access information abroad using a, a virtual private network. These kind of activities are all considered suspicious by the authorities, and we were able to understand that by reverse engineering the app, which is to say that we look at the code of the app to see what the, the app actually is telling the police officers as suspicious activities.
0: I think I saw that one of the items was even just something as simple as growing a beard. Yes. Um, and And so when you Get draw their attention like this, and you flag some criteria that somebody in an office somewhere decided is suspicious. What do, what do they do with you? I mean, you mentioned they go to jail. Is that only if they can prove you've committed a crime? No, or or even if they just think you're a potential threat to the party because you're suspicious.
1: It's a letter. If you the 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 I the problem of a surveillance state. Married with, um, with essentially well, I mean we are talking with uh, talking about a government that has no rule of law, or, or that the government, the Chinese Communist Party, essentially controls the rule of law, uses the rule of law to achieve political um, goal. Um, married with um, is surveillance capabilities. Uh, then you have these extreme cases, like in Xinjiang where people are being imprisoned for growing a beard. It it just sounds incredible, right? But from the government's perspective, growing a beard is a sign of your religiosity, the fact that you are a Muslim. And Muslims are generally in Xinjiang, considered by the government as um, potentially anti-government and trust, having a beard, <laughs> would put you in prison. And and it's something that happens. And I think that we don't, it, it's, it's dystopian, of course. And there is no way to challenge that, right? Like in normal times, it would be like that. That makes no sense. But it's a bit like, you know... Um, you have in a situation where you don't have any rule of law, like lawyers will not represent you in Xinjiang because these are all state security uh, crimes. You, even if you uh, political uh, people who are put in these political education camps they do not go through a, a trial whatsoever there's no charge um and but if you do get placed in you know in the in the criminal procedure process uh there is some kind of very expedited trial but like i said no lawyers would in their right mind actually represent you in a way that would what would be, be recognized as the rule of law right like you know lawyers go there and this perform- performer and um and you are going to be in prison. And um, we have a lot of cases where people are being imprisoned for having attended a prayer session for their neighbor because the neighbor died. And she, an elderly woman, would get six years in jail. And other men listened to a religious recording sent by his daughter because, of course, people listen to religious recording uh, prayers and such. And he would be, uh, and he was imprisoned. And so as the rest of his family, because they circulated a prayer. This is what we are talking about in the absence of any kind of ability to push back against government um, surveillance. But this is not to say that the Chinese government surveillance capabilities are in any way sophisticated, right? This is intrusive and abusive because they can do that to people. Like you can say, well, a system that purported to be you know, fighting crime is actually just fighting people who grow beards, right? <laughs> it makes is it, not is not an efficient system. Is not even the right system. And yet they could do that because they're not ever held accountable for wildly inaccurate claims.
0: It it's. I've read such horror reports about these so-called re-education camps. Um, is is that the end product of all of this surveillance in that particular province?
1: there are many reasons in which people are being subjected to these political education camps. And not all of them uh, were vetted essentially through these surveillance systems. And you have to remember that surveillance in China, in addition to the use of technology, is as much about the people who conduct the surveillance, who decide who to send to these camps, who think Uh, who are in it. Increasingly, I think there's some evidence that shows that officials have been given quotas along the way. They have to catch, let's say, a hundred people out of a village of five thousand uh, to put in camps because that's about how many people have who have anti-government thoughts. Or uh, um, so, so it's it's not just about this use of technology. It's as much. The Chinese government has a very long history of conducting kind of essentially people to people surveillance, so as to speak.
0: And are they tracking relationships as well? I mean, are they are they essentially um, finding guilt by association because you're friends with somebody they're suspicious of?
1: back in so this the, the app in Xinjiang we reverse engineered in 2019 if I recall correctly or we published it in 2019 to and and the app itself I obtained it in um, the version I think was used around 2017 so you could say that it's five years old old by now. And at the time, the kind of relationship they tracked was, for example, whether or not you have any connections abroad. And particularly, they consider 26 countries as being uh, 26 sensitive countries. And these are countries like Turkey, Saudi Arabia, Afghanistan, and Indonesia. As you can see in the pattern here, um, these are countries with Muslim majority populations. So anyone with personal relationships to these countries, for example, if they have an uncle or brother, uh, if you call someone uh, in these countries, if you send money to these countries, then you could be picked up by these surveillance systems and subjected to arbitrary detention, as I described.
0: It sounds like the surveillance is the most intense in the Xinjiang um, province. Is, Is it happening all over China as well?
1: Absolutely. I think the the surveillance is most intrusive visible in Xinjiang in the way that you can really draw a straight line between the use of surveillance all the way to, you know, imprisonment. Often, you know, people who say surveillance, especially in civil society, in democracies, the challenge is often drawing that line, right? You know, lots of proponents of surveillance would say, oh, well, like, you know, it's not as bad as you think. And, but if you if you look at the more extreme end of surveillance, government surveillance like in places like Xinjiang, you can really draw a straight line. In elsewhere in China, though, it's not as straightforward because, of course, government surveillance often is also very hidden. So people are not actually told that they were um, you know, being subjected to surveillance and that's why they're being put in prison. They're, they're not often told. And we were just lucky to find many kind of forms of evidence that the authorities weren't really hiding in Xinjiang because they didn't think anybody were looking. In the rest of China, you can still find a lot of evidence, but there is less of a straight line because in the rest of China, you don't have the the political education camps that were very much part of the repression of Muslims, of of, um, Turkic Muslims in uh, the Xinjiang region. So we could see that very clearly. Um, In the rest of China, though, you have similar systems. Um, You have, and I haven't actually described how surveillance systems work in China. At the very basic level, there is the requirement that everybody in China have to have an ID card and a number and the number is used in accessing many different forms of public and even private services. And that kind of provide the authorities some ability, you know, good ability to, to track you in various spaces. Um, and then on top of that, there's a requirement of real name registration that when you take long distance buses or trains, you have to use your ID number. And uh, that provides, you know, the ability to track your transportation, your movement. But in addition to that, when you use your SIM card. And that your phone essentially has become many people's identifier uh, through time, right? In many places. And that also is connected to your phone. Your phone is connected to your IMEI number and your uh, MAC address. All of that is, some, is, is connected and sends through these sensory systems throughout the your environment um, that are then kind of fed into... Um, big data systems. So, so like I said earlier, that you know, your face is definitely an identifier, right? Like your phone's MAC address and IMEI number. Some of your identifiers are less easily ordered, like you can't really change your face, you, you could have, you're a professional criminal, right? but like, <laughs> um, um, there are also 3d masks now, um, which you could print.
0: Yeah. I've got to get one of those,
1: <laughs> but, um, <laughs> in case anyone is wondering <laughs> or, 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 you know, facial recognition, anti-facial recognition, um, glasses and so on. But at any rate, your face is generally very hard to be uh, changed meaningfully to avoid these systems. But the idea is that when you are, when there are many kind of different forms of identifiers your ip address and all of that and it's kind of floating through these systems right um, and they be been collected in various different ways and they're being integrated in you know, these big data systems to figure out whether or not there are abnormalities how people are related uh, where are they going who are they traveling with which which network devices go with another one now uh, these kind of relationship information like you were just asking along with you know modeling like computer modeling like okay so uh let's say someone who um who who tend to be you know scamming online would generally have this kind of pattern of bank activity or someone who is a political activist generally has another set of personal relationships or something the idea is that through understanding these general patterns we are a- the police in china are able to kind of catch and predict these kind of what they consider as crimes and including political crimes these are forms of what the authorities call predictive policing which they are very inspired by what's going on in the US many of these systems are have draw the inspiration from the US and the UK in in their policing tactics and so on but the these predictive policing systems are being developed right now, in the recent years, much more sophisticated in their intention and aspirations than, you know, in 2017, when we documented the integrated joint operations platform. If you remember, the integrated joint operations platform was more kind of like, if someone grows a beard, that person is suspicious, let's go and investigate that person. That's like an A, B and C kind of approach, straight line. But like the predictive policing systems, they are trying to develop is now a lot more about patterns of activities and relationships and networks and so on, that the government is really trying to do. However, I would now this is also very important to to remember is that the Chinese government and the Chinese police are trying very hard. There's a lot of also marketing materials out there by these companies that say, Oh, we can do predictive policing and blah, blah, blah. But in actual practice, Sources of information is not so easy to be integrated. The police continue to struggle over integration of data and complain about silos of information. Um, Big data is also not very you know well it's also not very kind of accurate or or you know you also need to have good quality information from the bottom through up and when it requires government of um, uh, police officers to be very diligent in collecting that information and when they are really not that diligent then you have you know much less capabilities of using the uh, much um, these systems actually don't get used. Um, so this is to say that I think the Chinese government certainly has these intentions. They certainly will develop these kind of capabilities, whether or not they're able to use them, whether or not they're actually accomplishing their goals are big Questions, but the problem is whether or not they're actually accomplishing them is a, is a different question from whether or not they will try to use them even incorrectly, like in the cases of Xinjiang, where either way these are abusive systems.
0: And so, what what are they trying to predict with predictive technology? Are they trying to anticipate somebody who may become an opponent of the state? They,
1: they do try to apply it, these predictive policing capabilities on some real crimes. So, so not not just about catching political activists. In fact, the, prob- the problem here is that you do, well, I mean, you do have real crimes in China that police have to also to try to catch. But the problem is when they are such abusive environments in which these systems are situated, then you have essentially this Infinite expansion of surveillance capabilities on catching even like the most common crimes. So, so from a human rights point of view, uh, going back to to the basics, governments can collect information about citizens, right? You know, like a very classic example is the hospital have to know what your medical record was is to provide the care that you need. That is a straightforward, like you would give consent, you know, that data stays in a hospital and nowhere else. It certainly doesn't go to say the police It shouldn't go to the police, for example, or any other kind of aspects of, of to to other entities that has nothing to do with your care. But collection of personal information should be necessary, proportionate and lawful according to international human rights law. And that, means Means they have to be necessary for the purpose that they're supposed to achieve, um, proportional to the goal. Like, let's say, uh, for if you are protecting public security, if you say you're catching someone for a terrorist crime, it actually has to be very proportional. Like, you, you can't blanket this. You shouldn't be blanketing the society with surveillance devices because you don't want anyone to steal cigarettes from the convenience store. That would be wildly disproportionate surveillance and unlawful. That there are laws that very specifically lay. Out what is proportional, what is necessary, are there other means that could accomplish similar goals without dramatic abuses of of rights so so let's say you have a problem with cigarette theft the, the solution is not to you know make sure that the whole city is blanketed with surveillance devices, but you're actually going to i don't know like maybe have some kind of sting operations, maybe educate the youth or like whatever
0: right right <laughs> but
1: the, these are right consistent
0: but not pull out the satellite technology for a pack of cigarettes
1: exactly exactly so so that would be you know the law would say in these very serious crimes uh, these kind of situation and there's you know restrictions and sharing of information blah, blah blah the problem here in china is there is very little restraint on police power. Now, there is now um, a series of laws in China and regulations. One of them is actually protecting private um, personal information, which is new and certainly a positive step. But most of the the intention of the law is primarily to ring in internet platforms, private companies, not the government. Although government is there are some provisions in there that theoretically should also regulate government data sharing and so on. But given how powerful Chinese police is, these laws will unlikely to really, you know, restrain them. Also, when the goal of policing is to integrate these sources of information to provide intelligence for for their policing. So... The the problem is that essentially the police can do whatever they want. They can integrate many different sources of data across across their their domain of policing and government, and then across different regions of China too. Then, on top of that, you have very little kind of ability. Like say, police issue a warrant for for someone. There's like no court involvement. You don't have to go to court for the police. Don't have to go to court to to apply for anything. They just have to like apply within the police. Um, theoretically, you know, up upper level police officers should exercise some level of supervision. But you know that how likely would that really be when when the police goal is to shore up the party's power. So essentially, we're talking about a very abusive environment where, you know, I I think I'm sure people are are familiar with the idea of mission creep, right? So surveillance systems sometimes it's developed, you know, it's about terrorists and torture the uh, you know something you know there was this, this always this classic question like if someone is going to bomb planted some bomb are you allowed to like torture this person like it's like this classical ethical dilemma right and 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 surveillance system is a little bit like that where you say okay like the idea is people imagine it's all about this like serious crime that if we don't use this like really um, Kind of abusive tactics we won 't solve them, but then what happens is actually that they become increasingly common and they become applied to all kinds of situations on people who are immigrants, for example, people who have no power to resist and you know to say that China is has, has a surveillance mission creep is is perhaps not accurate um, because these systems are designed for being essentially kind of like the kitchen sink. You throw every single problem of policing into it in, into the surveillance kitchen sink. And then, well, because the whole society is essentially surveilled, and so why not? Let's let's try to catch a thief or, or um, who are uh, who have stolen some little thing from a shop to catch the person. So, and this is where the problem is. Is then the whole society is is surveilled, and every single. Gr- many different kinds of crimes are then resorted uh, that you could use surveillance, kind of the mass surveillance system, repurpose the mass surveillance system for those purposes.
0: I think that's really a good point about mission creep, because even though China's goal may be to use it as expansively as possible, it's something for us to worry about in the West is if we give our government some room to to surveil the population, how far do they take it and what kind of mission creep do they experience and I think one thing you said that really gave me the chills was that China was adopting some of its techniques from watching what the U.S. and the U.K. are doing. I had always imagined it was the other way around, but the thought that that they're actually drawing lessons from us—I I wonder if—and I think this may be my last question, but I wonder if there are lessons the West and, and particularly the U.S should learn from China's experience and about what we should avoid to to prevent this from becoming our future too.
1: First of all, some positive aspects of this comparison is that what China is trying to accomplish, and like I said, they are, you know, far from being able to accomplish their aspirations because of, you know, all the reasons I, I was explaining, but they, they are able to be having the the level of surveillance they have right now through many years of paving the way towards it right you need a national ID number you need to be using requiring people to use real name to access services you need to essentially have a vacuum like you, you need to have no laws to regulate the police um, you need to try to integrate sources of data and in in places like the US for example you have many different forces that mutate against these kind of systems right the, the key is to understand that facial recognition is just one form of surveillance. I think the danger is integration of data because of course, sorry. I, I should also say that, like I said, identifiers of yourself there are many different forms, right? Some are harder to change uh, rather than others. So your face is obviously an important part of that identifier that you really should be protected in more as a sensitive information. So there should be laws that really tightly regulate the use of surveillance, both by the government and by private entities that meet international human rights standards as i just outlined that they have to be necessary and proportionate the, the government government's gathering of information needs to be necessary and proportionate now the us doesn't have any federal privacy laws and it still lags behind many other developed countries when it comes to protection of people's privacy that leaves americans vulnerable to surveillance of many forms, not just by the government, by the police, but also by large platforms, which actually, outside of China, these companies are integrate have the ability to integrate your data actually in a way that I think no other entities are quite capable of doing. So we're talking about some of these internet platforms that are gathering your internet browsing history, you know, your your shopping records, your IP address, um, your friends, your relationship networks. Some of them are even branching out to your DNA. And when that information is can be cross-referenced, location data, another big one, then you have a problem where it's very difficult or impossible to escape that kind of surveillance. Of course, you know these companies are saying like, you know, the Chinese police, essentially, when they also have the coercive instruments of the military and the police, we're not talking about Western internet platforms having those coercive powers. But nonetheless, what we need to watch out for is the ability for any entity to integrate large amounts of data including your sensitive identifying information making it impossible to escape surveillance for different purposes whether or not we are talking about surveillance capitalism or you know surveillance for political goals the context in which we're in is very important, right? In China, you have the same, t- you essentially have the same technologies, but the systems are different, right? We're talking about integration of data. We're talking about a, a government that's completely a, a, unaccountable, and authoritarian one that uses a system, so design to design to make sure these systems work to uh, is, essentially ensure that it, it will rule forever. But in a democratic society, what you really have to worry about is to make sure that we don't kind of sleepwalk into that kind of situation the protection of personal information to me is almost like a collection of pillars to your democracy as you as we said in the u.s the u.s is also experiencing quite a backsliding on democratic on democracy right Um, it's not so hard to imagine that as we as, as the U.S., say, elect someone who has authoritarian tendencies, who are going to take away pillars of democracy, who are going to rig elections. And the next thing is to that you already have police forces that have some of these surveillance systems, integrate them, um, make them go after dissidents and activists. And, and over time, maybe not immediately, you could have an authoritarian government here in the U.S. And I think that's a very serious question is that you have to guard against all of these elements to make democracy stronger so that you do not become that kind of Orwellian society where kind of the the, the boot is permanently on the face of the human race. But that's not to say that tomorrow you flip the switch um, and, and the society becomes, you know, the kind of like surveillance state. I don't think that the U.S. is there yet, also because I'm not an expert on the U.S., but also as I understand it, these surveillance systems, although quite powerful, you know, resting in certain police forces or or the NSA, they are you know, quite fragmented. And they also have laws they have to follow in In a way that is, these laws are so much stronger and at least compared to what w- would be, you know, on, in China, which is no law at all restraining
0: police power. Well, thank you so much, Maya. This has been wonderful talking to you and such an education. And that's it for this bonus content from The Continuous Action. If you haven't listened to episode three of The Continuous Action, check it out. It features Maya Wong, Paul Butler and Jake Laparu talking about surveillance and in particular facial recognition technology in the United States and abroad. The Continuous Action is hosted by me, Walt Schaub, and Virginia Heffernan. The main episodes are produced by Myron Kaplan with help from Bubba Bach. However, this bonus content was produced in-house by Pogo. Music was supplied by Sonic Sanctuary through Shutterstock. And the Continuous Action, along with This bonus content is created by the Project on Government Oversight, Pogo.